So uh, my my only job was to move the microphone from here to there, and the plan sounded great. It just didn't t- take into account my capacity to actually pull that off. So my apologies on that one. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter twenty this morning. And uh, we, we started in on it last week and did a, an overview of the Ten Commandments and uh, the, the sweetened condensed milk version of it is that the Ten Commandments uh, are not to be looked at as a list of don'ts um, for a path of obtaining God's favor. That if we don't do this and don't do that and don't do that, then God will like us and accept us. But rather to be the, the marker lights along a runway that show us the boundaries of where God's blessing lies. So that we function in, in God's blessing and covenant relationship with Him and benefit the fullest from that and know where the markers are where we begin to wander outside of that protection and blessing of God. So that's the, the overview of the, the Ten Commandments there. And then there are, the Ten Commandments are then, um, there, there are kind of two parts to the Ten Commandments that are reflected in what Jesus said represented all the law and the prophets. And that is this, that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, that those two commands which he, uh, uh, which he said were the greatest commands, um, within those two commands is re- represented the whole uh, Word of God. And so, um, so we're going to find that there are sort of uh, two groups of commands here. One that orients us vertically towards God, our relationship directly with Him, and then others that are more oriented towards how we operate with others. Um, So we're going to look at the first two this morning, and uh, we're going to begin reading in Exodus 20 verse 1, and uh, then we'll read the first two commands here. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I believe that all the other, that the the Ten Commandments really stand on the first one. The first one is really a foundation stone for the other commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. There is a, a covenant relationship that God has brought the Israelites into. The nature of that covenant is established on loyalty. It's established on faithfulness to that covenant. And so the first law or first commandment here, you shall have no other gods before me, is one that concerns the worship of the right God, if you will. That we, that, that His worshipers recognize who He is and worship Him as such. And so the first commandment here targets the loyalty and the faithfulness of those in covenant with Him. Um, When we think about covenant faithfulness, obviously one of the things that comes to our mind would be marriage, right? What's interesting is uh, there are are a lot of... uh, similarities of covenant relationship in marriage and covenant relationship with God. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul makes 
an association between the way a husband is to love his wife and Christ loving the church. And so we see the, that covenant relationship and faithfulness and loyalty that, that is uh, to be um, present in a marriage relationship. Paul actually says, he, you think he's talking about marriage there as he's going, and then he just all of a sudden says, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. So the greater revelation of covenant relationship, faithfulness, and loyalty that's displayed in marriage is actually more present, more, more relevant to speaking about the relationship between God and His people. His faithfulness, His loyalty to us, and that faithfulness and loyalty being reflected back to Him by those who walk with Him. So you shall have no other gods before me. There, um, of course, that was a, they came, they were rescued out of a culture, the Egyptian culture, that had uh, an accepted practice of the worship of many gods. Uh, God for this and that and the other thing. And, and even Pharaoh himself would claim some, uh, would have some claim to deity. And so um, there would be uh, many ways of worshiping, and really it, it, the, the worship of many gods, it kind of serves um, really human purposes, doesn't it? Because we feel a need to make worship convenient. And when you can have an idol wherever you go that reminds you of the object of your worship, which is uh, sometimes an idol was the object to be worshipped, but oftentimes it was meant to be uh, an image that reflected the one worshipped. So not not the thing worshipped itself, but rather meant to give an image of what is being worshipped, if that makes sense. So if you have an idol in your home, it gives you a convenient means to worship in your own home, and you don't even have to go to the temple, right? Um, it's, it's like doing it online, right? It's the old school version of that, I guess. Um, so th- it was also a way of, of manipulating gods. So, you know, in fact, um, in, a, in a lot of cultures, the gods actually need to be fed. Um, and so you present food sacrifices to idols, and you feed your gods, and then you make them happy, and then they'll not do bad stuff to you. Or even better, maybe they'll even do good stuff for you. Um, And so it would be reasonable to think that the Israelites, having operated within the Egyptian culture for so long, generation after generation, would have had their perspective of Yahweh tainted with a lot of Egyptian culture and worship practices. And God wants to impress upon His people here that I'm the one who's come to rescue you, I'm the one who heard your cries. I'm the one who's powerfully present to save and who brought you out of Egypt. And I am the one who is to be the sole object of your worship and devotion. That His people would be completely loyal to Him. Now when we um, think about having no other gods but Him, there we consider... Um, what is it that gets, gets our, our, the bulk of our um, heart? Where, where does the focus of our life lie? And there are several things that we can look at. Um, we can look at how we spend our time. We can look at how we spend our money. We can look at um, what we think about all the time. Uh, we can, uh, one, one of the things that we can look at is how do we respond when things are taken from us? Um, when, an, when a really important and valuable thing is taken from us, um, whether it's our health, a relationship, an occupation, um, if it's an important thing to us, we're going to have a, a, some type of grieving that goes along with that. It might look more like anger. It might look more, more like sorrow. But there's going to be some type of grieving that that goes along with that loss. But if it's an ultimate thing in our life, 
it, it will wreck us in a lot of ways. It will really throw us off the tracks. If, if our health is the very thing that we cling to for hope in this life, when that's taken away from us, it can really send us into a despairing place. If our relationship is the very thing that we hang our purpose and hope on, when that relationship is taken from us, if it's an ultimate thing to us and not just an important thing, it can really roll us off the rails. So when we consider the things that represent what's what's in our life and the things we give our time and attention to, when we start to evaluate, are these really important to me or have these become my God, the thing for which I'm living, the thing that has my devotion and my loyalty and my faithfulness, then we ask ourselves, what would I do if that was taken away from me? If If it would provoke me to to extreme anger and hatred and, and despair and hopelessness, then it's probably in the wrong position in my life. If I, if I think if this was taken from me, it, it would maybe wreck me for a few days or for a little stretch. It would, it, I would be really grieving over that loss, but I know God's going to see me through it. That's an important thing that probably should continue to be an important thing. Just don't make it an ultimate thing. God wants His people to have no other gods before Him. There's uh, some, I want to give you some images that kind of reflect, uh, give you a picture anyways, and maybe it's something that you can use uh, as you even share the gospel with people. Um, some pictures that kind of give representation to uh, where God is in our life. See, the first command is meant to center the Lord to the very center, uh, the hub of our life. That all things are connected to and, and find direction from. But this, this pit image right here, the circle would represent our life. The throne would represent who's in control, who's the boss, who's in charge, who gives direction to things in life. The S represents self, and the cross represents Christ. And so in this particular situation, this would be a person who has not accepted Christ, whose life is about and directed by oneself. And, and so the second image here is one who's accepted Christ, but is not submitting to His Lordship in their life. Is not surrendering their life to Him, but is trying to make their best effort to have Christ be a part of their life, and yet still manage everything how they want to. Now there's a lot of uh, negative things that go along with that. One of the most miserable places to be in this world is one who has accepted Christ and yet wants to live in the world. That is probably the most miserable state a person could be in. We neither have the joy of Christ and the peace of Christ, nor, nor what, it's not really joy, it's not really happiness that the world offers to us, but we don't even get to en- enjoy that aspect because we have the constant reminder of the guilt of our sin before God. When we try to direct our own world, our own life, uh, we all know what some of the results are, don't we? Um, we know that there's sorrow, there's confusion, there's frustration, there's anger. Uh, all those things that do not reflect a life in step with the Spirit of God that we find in Galatians chapter 5. Um, we find that uh, our life will often lack purpose, a sense of purpose and and hope and um, The last one represents what the first commandment is directing us towards. One who has both received Christ and submitted to His Lordship. That you are my Savior and you are my God. And I will do as you ask. I will submit to your will. And obviously, um, when we talk about submitting to the Lordship of Christ, letting Him reign over us, in every area of our life, 
we recognize this is not something we turn off and on in a perfect way, but rather it's something we grow in understanding of every day. But it is one who's pointed in the direction of, Lord, show me your way and I will walk in it. And so we begin to see in this situation where Christ is in charge, we're submitted to Christ, He gives direction to the things in our world, He orders our steps and we walk in it, and we begin to see the fruit of that bear out through the Holy Spirit in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. We see these things bearing out in our life in increasing measure as God has free reign in us and through us. Now, um, it's really when you look around the world and one of the things that um, just worldly effects of the gospel on cultures is that when we see the gospel come into a people group, what we often find is there's a, almost a certain amount of order that begins to happen within a society as it interacts with the gospel. Christ brings order to our world. Now that's not to say that the American way of doing things is all right. I'm not suggesting that by any stretch of the imagination. But that God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. And as the gospel meets our life, our world, where we live, we begin to find that order is brought to our life. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is truly for the benefit of the Israelites whom God has brought into covenant relationship with himself. To prevent them from operating in, uh, outside the bounds of his blessing, where they will find all those negative things of confusion and despair and anger and jealousy and uh, division. Loyalty and devotion to God. Look at Deuteronomy. If you want to turn to the right there, a couple books over there. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse Deuteronomy 4.32 For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, and there is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. I really think that this passage in Deuteronomy sums up well the context and the understanding that we're to have of the first commandment, to have no other gods. See, it was Yahweh alone 
who is God. There is no other. Yahweh alone, who is the God who hears, who hears their cries. When we opened up the beginning of Exodus, as the people cried out to God, it was Yahweh who heard their cries and responded. It was Yahweh alone who is the God who is present in power. It is Yahweh alone who saves, who saved them out of Egypt, who saved them from their enemies, who saved them in so many ways through the desert. It is Yahweh alone who loves them. And Deuteronomy even poses that consideration. Think, in all the world, in all your experience, in all that you've ever heard, have you ever heard of a God who did this? No, because there is only one. And He has made His name known to His people. In our Bibles, we see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And when we see that, in our, in our English translation, um, that represents the name of God. The name that He has given to His people to know Him by. And then when we see capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, that, happens, that, that, that speaks to His position, his, his authority, His supremacy over our lives and our submission to it. And so in Exodus, um, most of the time, we're going to see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, because it is God making himself known to his people, to be known. That, you know, I'm not just that guy that can't handle a microphone, right? I have a name. And if you know my name, that's one step towards actually knowing me. God wanted His people to know Him. He wants us to know Him. Not to know of Him, but to know Him. Not to be someone that you've read about, but to be someone whom you speak to and hear from. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8 says, The Lord says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God will not share His glory with another because there is none worthy of it. He alone is God of all. And so when we get to the second command, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. When he says, for I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, I am a jealous God, he, he is not, we would be totally misunderstanding here if we were to apply what we typically experience as jealousy. That is, we want something and we don't have it and we want to figure out how to get it. That's a very unrighteous type of jealousy that you and I know all too well. But what God speaks to is that He alone is God. He alone has rescued His people. He alone has brought them into covenant relationship with Him. And and as we use marriage as a picture of that covenant relationship God has with His people, you would be a fool and wrong if you were not jealous for your spouse. You ought to be jealous for the affection, love, and devotion of for your spouse, and you should not share it with another. Now that, on steroids, is our covenant relationship with God. That God will not share His glory with another. He alone has the right place of our devotion 
and our faithfulness. That's what it means that God is jealous. He is jealous because He created you and He loves you and He has given His Son to rescue you out of sin and death into life. And He is jealous for your devotion and affection because any other thing that you would devote yourself to and give your faithfulness to will destroy you. God's jealousy is perfect as all His other attributes are perfect. And all of His attributes are tied to all of His other attributes so that His jealousy and His love and His justice and His mercy are all smashed together in perfection. The second command then is pointed as the first command is pointed to our devotion and our loyalty, the second command then actually directs us towards a pure and sincere worship of Him for who He is. They sound um, very similar, like very similar commands, and I suppose there's a way in which they are. But in um, one, one note, just in... In the Israelites' world, in the, in the Old Testament world, it, the commands and the laws operated, had a different uh, way in which they functioned than our laws. So, like, we, we would say, um, if, if the law was written that um, a man shall not drive his car faster than the posted speed limit, and you went over the speed limit, your loophole would be, I'm not a man, I'm a woman, right? There would be a, like, we look at our law like that. Like, there's, if it's not spelled out in exactness, then there's a way for me to not obey that. Um, if the law says that, uh, well, whatever, you, you, you get what I'm saying. I mean, the court is packed with cases that are like that. Where someone is clearly in the wrong, but because our law operates in an exactness, um, there's a way for them to escape the judgment of the law. In these days, we might say that it was more the spirit of the law that was to be held to. So when we read that um, you shall not uh, bear false witness against your neighbor, there was not a loophole that said you could bear false witness against somebody across town. Right? Or you could bear false witness against a total stranger. No, it, the, it was the principle was don't bear false witness. Period. And so that's, as we, as we see the Ten Commandments here, we understand that the scope in which they're to be obeyed is much larger than the scope of any ten laws that we might have in our Western way of thinking and messed up world we live in right now. So you shall not take, make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. John chapter 4, Jesus actually, I think, gives um, an understanding to this as he meets with the Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 4, verse 19. And we're going to talk in a minute here uh, uh, just about ways that we um, wrongly worship God, ways that we make images of God. Um, but I think this, this passage really helps us to, to begin to grasp what this command is really about. John chapter 4, verse 19. So the woman said to him, Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say, uh, in other words, kind of the characteristic characterization uh, that, that the Samaritan woman is making is um, not necessarily that Jesus has really said anything, 
but rather you're a Jew, and Jews say this, right? So you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Um, Make special note there of verse 23, where it says the Father is... uh, that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. When we get look at the, the Ten Commandments and we see this, uh, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall make, not make for yourself any carved image or likeness of God or a God to worship. Uh, God is looking for true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. In other words, that we worship Him um, in sincerity, for one, that we worship uh, out of a genuine place in our life and we worship Him for who He truly is, not who we would like Him to be. Not who we would imagine Him to be, but who He reveals Himself to be. As we go on in Exodus, we find a moment in time where God's people are... are um, get a little anxious because Moses is gone for too long. And they start to raise a lot of ruckus about it. And um, in a very, in a move of of very poor judgment, um, there's a suggestion that, hey, let's gather all our gold, melt it down, and uh, make something of it, and then that, that's that's God to be worshipped. That's the golden calf incident that we'll get to later. Now, um, it's presented that this is your God, worship Him. Whether or not that is intended to mean um, a God totally separate from Yahweh, or whether it is meant to be a representation of Yahweh's power, um, which which, uh, a bull could be in those days, uh, a representation of power and might, strength. Um, Regardless of that situation, there was an image created for worship that could never give accurate reflection to who Yahweh reveals Himself to be. So whether we do that in a physical object or whether we do that in our mind, the the reality is God is calling us to have a purity and a sincerity in our worship that we worship Him in truth for who He really is. A right worship of God is not about um, the time, the place, uh, what you're wearing, the style of music, the order of the service, uh, about our emotions. It's not about our intellectual astuteness. Um, It's not about those things. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with, with those things in and of themselves to organize in a way that helps us, facilitates worship, a right worship of, of Yahweh. But right worship is not about those things. The, the, right, the right music set does not make for worship. The right emotion from the preacher, the right delivery, or the right series of slides or the right periodic placement of humor does not make for worship. Things that may not be bad, but are certainly not equivalent to worship. So do we worship an image, a likeness of God, or do we worship Him for who He truly reveals Himself to be? Because that is what worship is about. It is about knowing Him, revering Him, 
and honoring him for who he is. He is the one who alone is God. He is the one who alone hears our cries. He is the one who alone saves us and is present in power with us every moment of every day. He alone loves us. Now, there are many wrong ways that, that we can go about worshiping God. Um, and I just want to point out a few ways in which we we have a tendency to go, to go outside of uh, those runway lights where we can make images of God. Um, now, I realize that this command, sometimes we think, because we think like the whole loophole thing, like he said, don't make images or likenesses of God, and I have no idols in my house. Therefore, I'm obedient to this command. <coughs> That's how we think. But remember that when we get to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus brings revelation to what the law was all about, and it was about operating in the spirit of the law, not the technicality of it. And and so one example that Jesus brings to light is he said, you've heard said that you should not commit adultery. Uh, But I tell you, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. So Jesus gives a greater understanding of how we are to obey the law. So the question then is, do we have another way, maybe not a physical way, but do we have another way where we are tempted or prone to making likenesses of God? <clears throat> One of them is um, when, we, when we only uh, worship what we can see and understand. That is, that we'll believe about God what we can comprehend ourselves. And if it doesn't make sense to us, then I'm leaving that part out, right? So I can believe in a God who created the world. I can believe in a God who loves those he's created. But I can't believe in a God who, like, raises the dead and turns water into wine, parts the Red Sea. That's ridiculous. Science needs to help me out with some of these things, right? I can believe God created the world, but... I mean, the seven-day thing is a little bit, I mean, I don't know if I can go that far. When we begin to, to, say, to put ourselves in a place where we can worship what we can comprehend, we make ourselves, for ourselves, an image of God that does not truly reflect who He has revealed Himself to be. Because Isaiah chapter 55 says that He is not like us. His ways are not like our ways. We can't possibly comprehend the one who created us. There will be things that he has given us the ability to understand about himself. And there will be many things which we will, we will not be able to comprehend and some of them not in the slightest. And so will we worship him for who he presents himself to be or who we feel the need for him to be? A God who can fit within the box a God who I can understand and comprehend fully. The second thing is when we exalt worship expression above essence. That is, our method, our style, um, the right kind of lighting, the right kind of music, the right just, you know, well, (laughs) we saw how smooth we are here this morning as my transition with the microphone. Uh, when, we, when we try to just make everything just perfect, when we elevate the expression of worship above the essence of worship, that is, who we're worshiping and what of ourselves we bring to that worship, then we make a likeness for ourselves of God and do not worship Him for who He truly is. We're making it about us at that point, about a religion that feels good to us not about honoring God for who He truly is or the way in which He calls His worshipers to worship Him. I mean, you do realize that perhaps at this very moment there are believers gathered in some far corner of the world where they have no musical instruments and probably collectively there may be one of them that can carry a tune 
and yet they sing wholeheartedly in worship that honors and glorifies God together because they worship Him in essence. They bring themselves in spirit and in truth to worship Him in spirit and truth for who He is and has revealed Himself to be. The third thing is when we imagine that we can manipulate God. That is, um, now probably none of us would directly admit to this, but when we think things like, if I give a certain amount, then God will show favor to me. Um, Or if I make it to church every week, or if I read my Bible every day, then God will prevent some of this bad stuff from happening to me. Or if there's something in my life that I don't like, that somehow I can make a deal with God that can get me out of this jam or this thing, circumstance I don't like that's unpleasant for me. When we begin to sort of do things that are meant to provoke God to act in a certain way, That's manipulation. And God will not be manipulated. And and that is a point where we begin to make a likeness of Him. That is about, again, about us, not about Him. The fourth thing is when we worship Him in part and not the whole. Uh, What I'm talking about there is that we like to think of a God who's loving and merciful and gracious but a God who judges? A God who sends people into eternal judgment? Um, I just, that's, I can't think of that. I can't bear that. I can worship a God who would send His Son to die for me, but a, a God who, who punishes the Egyptians with plagues and, and even kills their firstborn sons? As part of his judgment, when we, when we begin to sort out the attributes we like and sort of rip out of the pages the ones we are uncomfortable with, we begin to make an image of him that is not him at all. He is perfect in all of his attributes. And we must worship him, as he re- worship him as He reveals Himself. And the fifth thing that I'll present to you as a way that we make an image of God is when we divorce our daily life from our worship. That is, when we show up, like say for instance here on Sunday morning, and we sing, and maybe our emotions get in it, and we, we have an appearance of joy and and He is my God, and I'm devoted to Him, and I'll lay my life down for Him. And then throughout the week, I have ungodly character. I maintain ungodly relationships. Um, I, I don't honor Him in the whole of my daily life. Then we make an image of God as if He is some object on a mantle that we can sort of be one way in its presence and yet another way when we're out of sight. But God is the one who sees all and He calls us to be purely devoted to Him and worship Him. And that transforms our life. Who we are on Monday morning, Thursday evening, Saturday afternoon ought to be the very same person we are right here, right now as we gather to sing about Him, to pray together, to hear His Word and receive it, that there should be no variation at all in who I am in the privacy of my home, interacting in a, difficult, uh, in, a, in a difficult moment with my spouse, ought to be the same person that I am when everything's going hunky-dory right here when we're together. That He is the God of all of my life and my worship of Him transforms all of my life and touches every aspect of my life. He is no less Lord over my Sunday than He is Lord over 
any other time of the week. He is no more Lord over me at the church building than He is over me underneath my car turning a nut to, uh, or turning a, uh, a bolt to uh, let some oil out, right? Who, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, He is, my worship of Him ought to cover all of those areas and all those moments, all those relationships. So when we, when we divorce Him, our worship of Him, what we call worship, from our daily living, we make an image of God and break the second commandment. The last thing I want to leave you with is this. So we see in the, in the Old Covenant here, um, God even giving them His name by which He is to be known. And laying down the path of His blessing for His people and His protection for His people. There's one thing that we need to know, and that is that when we keep going into the New Testament, Jesus is presented to us as Yahweh, God. God of all. Lord of the heavens and the earth. Creator of all things. The judge. The righteous judge. Redeemer. The Savior. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Actually, I'd I'm going to turn there because I didn't put it up there for you. Colossians 1:15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, the language here is not meant to say that Jesus is like a like we would think of an idol, like a representation of someone else, but that Jesus is is the very image of the invisible God. That Jesus Himself is God. When we see Jesus, we are seeing God. We are not seeing the whole of God in that His full glory has not been revealed to us yet because we can't, we can't bear that. We can't handle that. But when we see Jesus, we are seeing God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is speaking again of Christ. John chapter 14. Jesus says an interesting thing. John chapter 14, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is God. And when we read about, you shall have no other gods before me, when we read, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or earth beneath. When we read that you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. When we go through these commands, it is right for us to think of these in terms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember in Exodus, we have God saving the Israelites out of Egypt. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant that we live in, God has saved us out of sin and eternal death through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we worship Him for that. We worship Him because there is no one else that we've ever heard who has done that. 
There is no one who has laid their life down, no God who has laid their life down for us. There is no, no God who has, has redeemed us based on His righteousness and not based on our righteousness. Jesus is Lord of all, and we worship Him. Let our worship be pure. Let us worship Him as He is, as He reveals Himself to be, not as we would prefer Him to be or what makes us comfortable to think of, but as He is. And let us do so in spirit and in truth. We come this morning as part of our worship in a, to a time of remembering His sacrifice on the cross as we take communion together. The bread that represents His body and the juice that represents His blood that to us remind us that Jesus Christ laid down His life as He hung on that cross. And even as He walked to the cross, He was beaten and bloodied by the blows of man, false accusations, humiliated and hung on a cross and did that to pay the price for our sins against our holy and righteous Creator. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And that is what brings us to the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite you to, there's three stations, a couple in the back and one in front, to take the bread and the juice and to take it back to your seat, and then we'll receive it together. Father, as we think of all that you have comes to an end, uh, we will stand before our Creator and His Word reveals to us that we will give an account. And our accounting will either come through the cross where Jesus has taken our sin and guilt and bore it there for us, or it will come upon ourselves as we receive the full brunt of God's judgment against our sin for eternity. Our decision on whether or not we accept Christ as our Lord and our Savior to forgive us of our sins and give us the hope of eternal life means a great deal, both in this life as worshiping, for, worshiping Him for who He really is, who He's revealed Himself to be, and for eternity. And my prayer to, for you and for me is that we will be more concerned with what God thinks than what we're comfortable with or what others think that we will be more concerned about where we stand at the end of our days before him than we do about uh, how easy it is between here and there and so uh, my encouragement to you is to get to know him for who is he has presented himself to be and worship him for all that he is lord bless and keep you